0: Well, good morning. It's been a blessing to gather with you already. You're a very hospitable and welcoming church, and it was a joy just to meet some of you uh, on our way in. Um, our church prays for you often in our service, and um, it's certainly a great privilege to be with you now face-to-face um, Brian and Graham have become dear uh, brothers and encouragements to me um, in pastoring, and I hope I can now be of some encouragement to all of you as we gather around the Word of God. Uh, A trilogy that my family has grown to love is Lord of the Rings. Sam and Frodo embark on this dangerous journey in hopes of destroying the one ring of power and their path is fraught with difficulty, trial, failure, darkness. They must pass through Moria, cross the dead marshes, ascend Minas Morgul, and stumble through a barren Mordor. In the movie, it's in Mordor as they draw near to Mount Doom, that Peter Jackson tries to capture how desperate they are. We find them at the base of the mountain, hungry, thirsty, weak, barely hanging on. Frodo even tells Sam, I can't recall the taste of food, nor the sound of water, nor the touch of grass, I'm naked in the dark. How many of us can identify with Frodo and Sam? Our path is often marked with suffering, trial, failure, darkness. We hunger and thirst for life as it's supposed to be full of joy and peace, and yet so often we're hit with things that drain us and leave us barely hanging on. We need someone like Sam in that moment to say, do you remember the shire, Mr. Frodo? It will be spring soon, and the orchards will be in blossom. In the book of Revelation, God's people are depicted passing through a wilderness and throughout the book in that wilderness God's people are beaten down they are thirsty they are fearful sometimes even the communities right around them is full of sin And darkness, even some within their own ranks, are starting to fail. There's even scary beasts in this wilderness, like a great red dragon seeking to devour them. But as you read the book of Revelation, you realize this book is telling our story, Our path is fraught with difficulty, trial, failure, darkness, and it often leaves us weary, barely hanging on. The book of Revelation was written to people like that, whom John calls partners in tribulation. Revelation comes alongside of us like Sam, and into those moments it says, it will be spring soon. A new day is coming when you will no longer hunger or thirst, and all your weariness will be replaced with life, healing, joy. Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5, paints A beautiful picture of this life. It's so rich. uh, Would you mind if I read those words again? And let's just hear them wash over us. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever." The presence of God, a river flowing, the tree of life, a land without curse, people reigning and having dominion, I wonder if those ideas ring any bells for you. I wonder if we find them other pla- another place in Scripture. They all appear in the opening chapters of our Bibles. In Genesis 1, God entrusts man with dominion. In Genesis 2, God prepares man a garden with a river and a tree of life. Man was to serve and enjoy an abundance of life in God's presence. But we all know the rest of the story. Man listens to the serpent. Instead of trusting God's Word, man chooses his own path, and that path leads to death. The Lord curses the ground. God banishes man from His presence. He blocks man's access to the tree of life. And we also learn that man's dominion is corrupted. And ever since that day, from Genesis 3 on, life outside the garden is full of sin and sorrow, full of suffering and death, thorns and thistles. But here, in Revelation 22, we find a different day reported, don't we? The Bible closes with a new Eden in a new world, and central to that world is the throne of God. Did you hear it mentioned twice? In verse 1, from the throne of God, and then in verse 3, the throne of God and of the Lamb. The throne of God is central to the new world. To this point in Revelation, John has developed the sharp contrast between God's throne in heaven and Satan's throne on the earth. God's reign in heaven, and Satan cast down to the earth. God's dwelling in heaven, which gives life, and Satan's dwelling on earth that takes life. In chapter 13, verse 2, Satan even gives his throne, that is, his authority, to other beastly kings of the earth, and they used their power to attack God's people. But here we read of a new day where God's heavenly throne has now come down to earth and replaced all of the rebel thrones. What are the results of this throne? now on earth?" Well, we're just going to look at two of them this morning. First, from the throne, God's abundant life renews everything. From the throne, God's abundant life renews everything. You probably noticed how John describes this river flowing from uh, a city. Well, it's the same city of chapter 21. Uh, It's called the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem is God's city. It's a holy city. It's a beautiful city. It's an unshakable city. But most importantly, it is the place of God's enthroned presence. If you look at chapter 21, verse 16, he even describes the city where he says its length and its width and its height are equal. So it's shaped like a cube, not like Arlington. It's a strange city. That's because in the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies was a cube. The point here in 21 is that the Holy One has made the entire city his most holy place. And unlike the days of old where only a few mediators had access to God's presence, now everyone has access. God's presence fills the entire city. And so everyone, all of God's people, all who belong to the Lamb get to participate. That's chapter 21. And now John, in chapter 22, is moving within that city that's full of God's enthroned presence. Within that city, John sees the river of the water of life. My wife, Rachel, loves plants, succulents, vines, flowers, cactus, bulbs. They're all. There are many, many plants at our home. And some days, like when it's cold, it's hard to know if you're outside or inside. <laughs> They've all been brought in. But every little plant she has teaches a lesson. Water gives life. That's what nature teaches us. That also makes water a fitting symbol for spiritual life throughout the Scriptures. So, one example in Scripture comes from Jeremiah when God calls Himself the fountain of living water. Or maybe in the Psalms, where he says, Give me life according to your word after being parched, right? And dried up. And likewise, the river here signifies God's presence bringing life. God's presence gives life and animates this new creation. But let's back up for a moment. The story, as I mentioned earlier, begins in Genesis. Chapter 2, Eden was God's initial dwelling place, and from His dwelling place, there was a river. Chapter 2, verses 10 to 14, speak of a river that flowed to water the garden. And so, right from the start of our Bibles, we get a river flowing from God's presence to bring life to Eden and beyond. And of course, we also learn that once Adam and Eve rebel, they don't experience this life any longer. The ground is cursed. And if you step forward in, the, in your Bibles a little further, you also see the same thing happens with Israel, right? Israel is, is, is in the land of promise, the land of Canaan. It is supposed to be bountiful and plenty, right? Well, when they rebel, they are banished. God shuts off the waters as well. He hardens the ground. What's the point? Well, the point is that sin cuts us off from the blessings of God's life. We see that in the garden, and we see that in the land of Canaan. Sin cuts us off from the blessings of God's life. And so it becomes a really, really big deal in Scripture when God starts talking about water returning to the land and things like this. So, Ezekiel 47 is a great example of this where God's new life again is symbolized by a river. Ezekiel 47, the Lord promises to return to His people so His presence would come, and from His new dwelling place, Ezekiel sees a river. And at first, it's just kind of a small trickle coming out from the new temple, but the further out you go, the deeper it gets. And so it's, it's ankle deep at first, and Ezekiel goes out a little further, and it's knee deep, and then waist deep, and eventually it's enough for him to swim in until finally he gets so far out he can't even pass through it. And so Ezekiel comes back to the riverbank and, and in his vision, and when he looks out over what, what was once a cursed land, suddenly he sees life everywhere. It's like watching an episode of Planet Earth when the rainy season turns the desert into a paradise. And likewise, this this river from God's presence transforms the desert into a lush garden, and then it flows flows down into the Dead Sea, and it turns the Dead Sea waters fresh. Ezekiel uh, says that he sees many trees, their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. They will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary, that is, from God's presence. He also says their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Sounds a lot like what we read earlier in Revelation. This imagery is beautiful. I see some of the kids are drawing over there. This is probably one of the easiest sermons to draw. Draw a desert being turned into a, f- a paradise, a-, a forest full of lush trees with good fruit. The point here is that they are, Ezekiel is seeing a day when life in God's presence reverses the curse and transforms the land into a paradise. And Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 8, builds on the same imagery, only he takes it a step further. He says, on that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. So, not just the temple, but the whole city has become God's sanctuary. Joel, chapter 3, verse 18, takes it a step further. He says, a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Now, Shittim uh, is another word for the Acacias. And um, several places in Scripture associate uh, these more desolate places where the Acacias grow um, with the land of Moab. In other words, the waters will renew the nations, not just Israel. And so all of these threads from the Old Testament are coming together here in John's vision. John sees their fulfillment now in the new Jerusalem. God's presence brings life to everything in the city. His presence makes all things beautiful and whole. But there's something else John sees that Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Joel didn't get to see. That is the Lamb. The river flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So God and the Lamb share the one single throne, making them both the one source of the river of life. But this also reminds us of a larger pattern in Scripture. Any access to life in God's presence comes by the sacrifice of the Lamb. That was true in the tabernacle in the wilderness. It was true in the temple later on in the land, and it is true here in our passage. Access to life in God's presence only comes through the sacrifice of a lamb, only this lamb is no longer dead. He was once slaughtered, but he is risen and enthroned to give life. In John chapter seven, I mean, I mean, not John, uh, Ezek, uh, Revelation chapter seven, verse seventeen. John sees this lamb. Same Lamb guiding His people, His weary people guiding them to drink from the springs of living water. And so, something to keep in mind here is that only through the Lamb, Jesus Christ, do we have access to life in God's presence. So, if you want access to life in God's presence, you come to it through the Lamb, through Jesus Christ. Adding to the picture here, John also sees the tree of life on either side of the river. Now, that could mean he's got this elaborate root system that that spans both sides of the river. It, It could mean that the tree's canopy extends over the river. Others have said that this might be a collective noun where the tree, the one tree, represents many others. But the point stays the same, regardless what position you take. We're seeing the total reversal of man's condition. Right. In Genesis 2, once again, we first see the tree of life in the garden, and, and not much is said there about the tree, and we can speculate, um, but Proverbs helps us. Uh, Proverbs 3.18 compares the tree of life to wisdom. Um, Proverbs 11.30 compares the tree of life to a righteous person and his behavior. Proverbs 13, 12 compares the tree of life to a a satisfied desire. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 4 of Proverbs compares the tree of life to a gentle tongue. And so you get the impression that whatever the trees make up, to eat from that tree shows this deep satisfaction with God's Word and how those words order and bless all of our relationships. And had Adam found his satisfaction there, this this would have been man's condition forever in God's eternal wrath. Instead, Adam eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, contrary to God's Word. And basically, this was Adam and Eve's way of determining good from evil without God and in the place of God. And so, God bans them from the tree of life, Genesis 3, verse 24. God drove out the man, and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so sin means we no longer have access to eternal life. And in Adam, that is all of our story. We are still outside the garden. But for those in New Jerusalem... When that city comes down, God opens the way to the tree of life again. From all sides, we see that people take and eat. It bears twelve fruits according to each month, point being that its bounty never ceases. In the Lord's presence, we will always be satisfied. Also, like the trees that Ezekiel saw, the leaves of this tree bring healing but whereas Ezekiel saw them healing only Israel, John sees the leaves healing the nations. Now you could ask, well, healed in what sense? Are they healed physically? Are they healed spiritually? Are they healed relationally? I think the answer is D, all of the above. The life emanating from God's presence restores everything and everyone in every way. The first half of verse 3 makes the same point, but it states it negatively. No longer will there be anything accursed, meaning cursed because of sin, like when God cursed the ground in Genesis 3, 17, and and since then all creation groans in futility, or when God curses the lawbreakers in Deuteronomy 27 and, and, and and explains how those curses play out in Israel's history. But for those in New Jerusalem, all curses are gone because sin is totally gone. That's the point. There's no more thorns and thistles. There's no more exile. There's no more international conflict. There's no more oppression in Sudan. Sin won't even be a possibility in the New Jerusalem, which makes it better than Eden. Eden. Now, you might say, wait just a minute. You said the Lord banned Adam from the tree of life. And you also said, since Adam, no one has had access to that tree. Everyone stands cursed after Genesis 3. How does anyone get to experience the tree of Revelation 22? Brothers and sisters, we need another tree. Listen to this from Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. so that in Christ Jesus, it says, the blessing of Abraham might come to the nations. So Jesus hung on a tree, the tree of Calvary, the bloody cross of Golgotha, and He hung there to take away your curse and secure your access to God's abundant life in the new Jerusalem. That's the good news. So if you trust that Jesus did that for you, you will know God's abundant life in New Jerusalem. Psalm 46 says that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And if you trust in Jesus Christ, you will drink from that river and you will eat from this tree. So God's abundant life renews everything here. That's the first piece we see coming from the throne. The second piece is this, before the throne, God's priestly kingdom enjoys His presence. So before the throne, God's priestly kingdom enjoys His presence. Notice how verse 4 describes the people of New Jerusalem. It says His name will be on their foreheads. That reaches back to the priest's turban in Exodus priest wore a turban that said, holy to the Lord, across the, the forehead. And that's how John now sees the redeemed. And then at the end of verse 5, he says they will reign forever and ever. Okay, So he's blending these two images of priesthood and kingship, right? Reigning is what kings do. Genesis, Read Genesis 1, and you will learn that God created us to rule. Ruling creation rightly is one way we image God, it's kind of like God is the true ultimate king, and He's created a bunch of lesser kings to reflect what He's like. Sin has corrupted that dominion, but here it is restored. Forever in their state of glory, God's people reign, and they reign rightly. Once again, we see that the Lamb accomplished this. Chapter 1, verse 5 of Revelation says this, To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom and priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever. Chapter 5, verse 9 of Revelation, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them a what? A kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And so we see in Revelation that Jesus makes God's kingdom of priests, and because of his blood, we will get to enjoy God's presence. Notice where they are. It says that they're before the throne. Verse 3, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. This is the same throne. If you want more details about this throne, the same throne that you read about in Revelation chapter 4, it's wrapped in this rainbow-like emerald beauty with Jasper and Carnelian decorating the royal majesty. It's glory so brilliant that verse 5 says here there's no need for lamp or sun. But most significantly, verse 4 adds that these people will see God's face. What does that include, seeing God's face? What includes true knowledge of God? Think of uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. Paul says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so seeing God's face has to do with knowing Him truly as He is. It also includes blessing, right? In the Old Testament, not to have God's face was like death. Psalm 143, verse 7, Hide not your face lest I be like those who go down to the pit. But if God's face shone upon you, well, that meant grace and peace and blessing of all kind. Of course, one of the greatest blessings here is the splendor of God's glory itself. Sometimes God would reveal aspects of his glory to the prophets, and when he does, it's kind of partial, right? It, it's, uh, it's mediated by angels. Um, sometimes he, like when Moses, he tucks him away in a rock so that Moses can only see his backside. Sometimes it's hidden by these dark clouds, like when you've got a theophany and God, God kind of appears, and his His glory is hidden by clouds. But but even what the prophets do see, the glory pushes them well beyond what language can capture, right? They're just kind of throwing stuff out there to to describe to us what they're seeing, and such was the appearance of the likeness of of the glory of God, right? Thomas Boston once described what seeing God must be like. when when finite saints try to behold the infinite. Listen Listen to some of this imagery from Thomas Boston. They may touch the mountain, but cannot grasp it in their arms. They cannot with one glance of their eye behold what grows on every side. But the divine perfections will be an unbounded field in which the glorified shall walk eternally, seeing more and more and more of God, since they can never come to an end of that which is infinite. They may bring their vessels to this ocean every moment and fill them with new waters. What a ravishing sight it would be to see all the perfections and lovely qualities that are scattered here and there among the creatures, all gathered into one. But even such a sight would be infinitely below this blissful sight the saints shall have in heaven." So, what does seeing God's face includes? Well, it includes knowledge, it includes blessing, it includes splendor, But there is one more layer to seeing God's face. You will see him unashamed. What happens when you've done wrong and you go and confess that wrong to somebody else? You have a hard time picking your head up. You have a hard time looking them in the eye. It's even harder when your sin is against that person. Shame keeps you from lifting your face to to meet their eyes. How much more is this the case with God? At one point Ezra cries, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. But what does it mean in New Jerusalem when it says they shall see God's face? What does it mean for you to be able to see God's face? It means there will no longer be any shame. God has taken away all of their shame. There's no more hiding. You will look on God's face with unhindered openness because of what the Lamb has accomplished. What a great love God has showed us in sending the Lamb to take away all of our shame. That closes out John's vision of the city and the river of life. And the question is, what do we do we do with this? What do we do with this vision, right? How should we respond to it? Well first this vision motivates our endurance in love. It motivates our endurance in love and you're like where's that in the text? Right? Well, in reading Revelation, you've got to remember that this whole book is a letter, not just the first not just chapters 1, 2 and 3 are a letter. This whole book is a letter. Okay? You can see that in the way it opens in chapter 1 verse 4 and the way it closes in, in chapter 22 verse 21. So, Revelation as a whole is a letter. And so, we must ask, how does this vision function within the letter? And sure enough, the last place the tree of life gets mentioned is chapter 2 verse 7. In Jesus' message to the church in Ephesus. And if you go back there and read about Ephesus, we learn that Ephesus was a hard-working church. They were a morally resilient church. They were doctrinally orthodox, but they had abandoned love, which is a necessary virtue to the life of any true church. And Jesus calls them to repent and to return to their works of love. But when He gives, he, and, and then He gives, after He tells them to repent, He gives them a negative and a positive incentive. And the negative is Jesus warns that He's going to remove their lampstand if they don't repent, right? They won't be at a church anymore. They won't shine with Jesus' light anymore. That's the negative incentive. The positive incentive is Jesus promising them the tree of life. He says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, why would the tree of life come up as a motive for persevering in love? Because the path of love is often costly and exhausting. Raise your hand if you think love is convenient. All right, we're sound thinkers this morning. Love is rarely convenient, and it's often costly. Love means you keep sacrificing for others, even when there's little or nothing done in return. Love means bearing with those who've offended you and and then choosing to serve them. Love means sleepless nights to care for little ones. Love means giving to others when you wanted something for yourself. Love might even lead you to lose your life for another's sake. We don't need to go beyond our Lord's cross to learn that. So, love requires great sacrifice, but every sacrifice, every ounce of energy, every emotional strain, every relational tear that you experience because people want nothing to do with Jesus, it will be rewarded with an eternity of satisfaction in God's presence. You are in a wilderness, loving, laying down your life. You are thirsty, hungry, weak, some some days you might feel like you're barely hanging on. Sorry, Brett. No, it's okay. But God promises here eternal refreshment eternal refreshment for you beneath the tree of life. The Lamb will guide you to springs of living water, and you will be healed and know life like never before. And so, keep enduring in love. That's how this vision relates to our need to persevere in love. Also, something else to consider here, draw near to the Lamb now for living water. Draw near to the Lamb now for living water. Now, last Sunday, Brian preached to you a sermon titled, Gospel Realities Now. You remember it from John 16? Gospel Realities Now. And he showed you from John 16 things like how Jesus turns sorrow for sin into fullness of joy and how Jesus turns false assurance into, into true peace. He does that for us right now as we come to him and trust in him. Well, I want to I want to add to Brian's list. Uh, check check this out. In John chapter 4, why does Jesus offer the Samaritan woman living water? Right? Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then John, in John 7, 38, why does Jesus say that anyone who believes in him out of his heart will flow rivers of living water? And he says he was referring to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the blessings of the, of the new age... The age that we've been talking about today, those blessings have come crashing into the present in the person of Jesus. So we don't have to wait until the very end to begin experiencing eternal life. He offers it now through the gift of the Holy Spirit. What is it that finally transforms the world in Revelation 21 and 22. It is the presence of God. It's the his presence is the centerpiece. It's the whole point of the new Jerusalem. Well, guess what you get when you trust in Jesus? The presence of God in the Holy Spirit. If God's presence will remake the world like we've been talking about today, imagine what God's presence can do in your life today. Don't wait till the end. Draw near to the Lamb now and often seek His face in prayer, listen to His Word, walk with Him day to day. If the Lamb can and will do all of this at the end for His people, if God's presence turns wastelands into paradise, think of what He can do in your life now. Think of what He can do for your marriage. Think of what He can do for your parenting and your household. Think of what He can do for the family next door that's falling apart. Things won't always be this way. You won't always be this way, at least for those in Christ. So, you're not stuck. Second Corinthians 5.17 even draws from these same themes. If anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So, if the new has begun, that means there's hope for change. There's hope for reconciliation. There's hope for forgiveness. There's hope for newness of life. There's hope for growth. And So, draw near to the Lamb now to begin experiencing this living water through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, rest assured, in Christ your life has a great ending. The Lord is not ignorant of your difficult path. He sees what you are facing, and He knows what you need to see in order to keep going. Right? And you need to see the river of life. Consider what God's people were enduring when He showed them the river of life back then. In the Old Testament, we talked about them earlier. So in Ezekiel, goodness, the people were about to face ruin and destruction like Babylon was on its way foreign nations would soon overwhelm them. In Joel's prophecy, you got these hordes of locusts that have devoured the countryside and all of their crops, and it puts them in a place where where Joel says that gladness itself had all dried up. Every morning they woke up to a barren and broken world to reminders of what sin had caused… In Zechariah, we have nations oppressing oppressing them, injustice was prevailing, their own faith had failed at times, and even as things were starting over in Jerusalem, it, it never lived up to the glory days they experienced before in the land. They were days of tears and thirst and weariness, and it was into those different situations that God is saying, here's what you need to see. You need to see the river of life. That's what they needed to see. That's what we need to see. We need a Sam to come alongside of us and say, it's going to be spring soon, (laughs) right? A new day is coming. Revelation is better, though. It's better because the Lamb is already on the throne. The Lamb has already secured the victory. We're just waiting for His throne to come on earth and make it like heaven." So if you belong to the Lamb, this is the end of your story. Your story doesn't end with what you did three years ago in that relationship. Your story doesn't end with with a spouse who betrays you. Your story doesn't end with, with how you failed the Lord a couple of hours ago. Your story doesn't end with regrets about the past decision. It doesn't end with disappointment at work. It doesn't end with not leading as well as you should have. It doesn't end with depression or cancer or death. It won't end with persecution, suffering, death, darkness. Those things might be part of your story right now. Those things might exhaust you in this wilderness. But if you belong to the Lamb, your story ends here with glory and peace, and joy, and healing in the new Jerusalem. Your story ends with life in the presence of God. Your story ends in a new paradise where there's, where there's not even the inclination to sin. Nothing you do will be mixed with falsehood or hypocrisy. All will be done in pure, devoted worship because you will see God as He is. The Lamb will shine on your path every day, and the darkness will be over. Every darkness will be over. United to the Lamb, you will be God's people in God's place, before God's presence, according to God's plan, forever. That's the end of your story in Christ, and it's that hope. That will help you put one foot in front of the other until the Lord brings us home. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your wonderful mercies that have been poured out on up upon us in the Lamb. We ask for your Spirit to take these words and drive them deep within our hearts that we may endure to the very end. Amen.